You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. Pretend you're, you've been called in to solve a robbery. You get a phone call that says, we want you to come help us solve this. What's the first thing you do? I'm sorry? <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, yes. Now, no, you go to the scene of the crime, right? You go to the scene of the crime and you start looking for clues. And you're trying, all right, was there a break-in? Was anything broken? What was actually stolen? Were there other things? And so you're looking at what you can find and also what you don't see. Um, I know one summer, I actually, it was my goal to read through all of the Sherlock Holmes the whole series. And I did that for one summer during my grad school years. And um, funny for him, not only for him, it wasn't just things he saw and observed, it was things he didn't see. And you know, one of them, the whole thing was like, did you notice the dog barking? Well, no, there wasn't a dog barking. That's the clue. Why didn't the dog bark? And so you look for clues, what you can see, what you can't see, what you can observe and not observe. And, and um, what's the most valuable thing to a detective? an eyewitness, somebody who can say, I saw this happen, and here's what happened, and and they can describe it, and they maybe even can identify who the culprit was um, that perpetrated the crime. Well, with this detective idea in mind, we have a bit of a mystery in the Old Testament book of Ezra. So let me give you a little context. Remember the Israelites, their whole basis of governance um, was, was re- known as a theocracy. They did have a king, um, but, but everything revolved around the religion. And because of that, the center of all of life for the Israelites was the temple. This is where they came for all their sacrifices. This is literally where God resided. So everything, everything centered around the temple. And As long as they pursued God and followed him and didn't turn their backs on him, things went well. But if you're familiar with your history there in the Bible, you'll recall that's not what happened. Time and again, the Israelites turned their back on God. They they forsook him and would worship other gods and do other things. And so God finally had had enough. And because they repeatedly turned their backs on him, he allowed them to be conquered, to be overrun by the Babylonians. King Nebuchadnezzar came and overcome in about 586 BC for you historian uh, buffs. Um, when, When Nebuchadnezzar did this, he destroyed the temple. Just tore it down, destroyed it. And not only that, all the gold and silver artifacts that were in the temple were carried away to Babylon. So it was all removed. And thousands and thousands of people were carried away into captivity as well. We said Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, some of these other stories we read in other parts of the Bible, these were people who were actually a part of the group that was carried away. About 50 years later, so 50 years have gone by, King Cyrus of Persia conquers Babylon, overruns them. So now Cyrus in Persia has control of all the things that Babylon used to have. So Cyrus, in his very first year, he approves the Israelites going back to Israel. About 50,000 Israelites head back uh, to their homeland. He also approves the rebuilding of the temple. 
And in fact, he actually finds, I mean, he must have had the, the stash in Babylon and got it to, to where they were in their part of the world. He sent back almost a little more, almost 5,500 artifacts of silver and gold that belonged to the temple. He sent and returned back to the Israelites to take back with them. So about 50 years after it had been destroyed, reconstruction of the temple begins. And we see in Ezra chapter 3 that the foundation is complete. They've built the foundation. But then it shifts again, and we all of a sudden we're reading about this king named Artaxerxes. And there's questions in history as to, there was actually multiple Artaxerxes uh, in, in the, the historical record. Um, so there's conversation about that. But clearly what had happened, there's a political shift a political shift. And so the Israelites under Cyrus had been given approval. He had given them resources and money and all these things to rebuild the temple under Artaxerxes. Because of the political shift, all the local leaders who were opposed to this building of the temple formed against them and they, they bribed local officials. They were corrupt. They, did, they didn't give them permits to build and whatever was needed, they opposed it. They even sent a letter to King Xerxes saying, you can't allow this to go on. These people, and they said all these different lies and all these things against the Israelites. Artaxerxes, <clears throat> then we read in Exodus 4.24, it says, thus the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius, king of Persia. So everything stopped under Artaxerxes. <clears throat> until the second reign of King Darius, we get another king introduced into this story. Our fourth king here that we're seeing within the, just this context of the temple. What's interesting is right after it says all the work stopped and then didn't start again until King Darius, the very, that ends chapter 4. Chapter 5 begins, so the very next verse we're introduced to this Old Testament prophet, Haggai. And it says that Haggai came and talked to the people, construction resumed, and the temple was completed in four years. So here's the mystery. We know from piecing together the timeline of the Persian kings, the Babylonian kings, and all the different things that are happening, about 18 years passed from the time they completed the foundation until Haggai shows up and they restart the temple building again. 18 years. 18 years of no activity whatsoever. So for me, the question is, the mystery is, what did Haggai say that caused the people to restart with the building of the temple? 18 years that had sat dormant. He shows up, says a few things, and all of a sudden, everything kicks up. Ezra doesn't tell us. Not a thing. Fortunately, this is where our detective work pays off. We have a witness. Actually, we actually have a confession. Because whoever compiled the books of the Old Testament found this script, this transcript from Haggai himself, almost like his diary of what was happening. So we actually have an Old Testament book called Haggai. And if you've uh, received Pastor Farrell's email this week, you realize that we're getting actually, we're starting a, a five-week series on the book of Haggai. Now, Haggai, it's, it's, a, it's a very short book. It's only two, two chapters. So you could read it literally within just a few minutes. Um, it's, it's really small. Because it's so small, it's the third one from the end. This is Malachi, Zechariah, Mal Malachi. Haggai, did I say it? Haggai, Sorry. Just testing to see if you're paying attention. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. 
And so, so whenever I look, I always start at the back and go the other way because it, it takes it's too small. You'll miss it. Really, really short. So as with that context in mind, you know, as we read our passage for today, remember that the temple was central to Israelite life. That was the center of, of everything. And 18 years have gone by since the construction started, and 18 years have gone by with nothing going on. So we're going to pick up with Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, so you can follow along here on the screen, if, uh, or you can read it on your own device or your own Bible. So in the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to the Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled house while this house remains a ruin? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we've got just a, a quick glimpse as to what's happening here in Haggai. And uh, as we begin this five-week series this morning, Lord, uh, give us insight as to where this is going and what it is you might say to us. And Father, even something that occurred 2,500 years ago uh, has something to speak to us today. So Spirit, Holy Spirit, uh, say to us what you desire. May each of us uh, um, hear your voice speaking to us in the way that you, you do. And uh, again, we just trust you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two misconceptions, general misconceptions about God. One is that some people think God is always angry. And he's just waiting for you to mess up so he can punish you. Their perception of God is with his clenched fist. You know, he's just waiting to strike you. Others, on the other end of the spectrum, others believe that nothing makes God angry. God is love. And God is this, you know, we, we have this perception of him that God is just everything's good and dandy and, and God wouldn't be angry at anyone. The fact is that both perspectives are terribly wrong. While it's true that God is love, and he cares about each of us deeply, there are two things that really hack him off. Um, one in Scripture, and this, one of them is injustice. When we treat others poorly. Proverbs chapter 6 um, <clears throat> says this, says there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Imagine that. He not only hates it, these are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. All of these have to do with how we treat one another, how we relate, how we interact. God hates injustice. He hates it when we treat others badly. Those behaviors are detestable to him. So that's one thing. The other thing that, that makes God angry, we see in Scripture constantly, <clears throat> is idolatry. When we um, put other things before God, and we've talked about this over the course of the last, well, actually, clearly the last year, about idolatry being not just an idol or statue that we put up and we kneel before it. An idol is anything that comes before God. Anything that has more priority in our life than God can be considered an idol. That's why if you look at the Ten Commandments, 
first half deal with our relationship with God. The second half have to do with our relationships with one another. These are the two things, injustice and idolatry, <clears throat> that really upset God. Idolatry is what's happening in Haggai. The people, intentionally or not, have neglected the one thing that should matter most to them, and that's how they related to God. Now, from the words of Haggai, we learn that God was pretty upset. Notice in verse 2. Can you bring up verse, uh, the, the first panel there again, Janet? I'm sorry, it's the next one. These people, God doesn't even say to them, my people. Or he's these people, those people. He refers to them in a way that uh, he, almost like he wants no association with them. He does not identify with them at all. There was an obvious distance between God and his people in this juncture. Now, the Israelites had their excuses for why they were neglecting the temple. Now, you decide, as we look at these here a little more closely, you decide if they sound like things that we might say today, 2,500 years later. The first excuse that they had that we see from verse 2 is that the time isn't right. Not now. I'll do it later. Or my favorite, I'll start tomorrow. Or I need to take care of a few other things first. On the surface, these excuses aren't unreasonable. And they may have even been acceptable for the first year or two but not after 18 years. What may appear to be procrastination is really misguided priorities. And we're going to talk more about that here in the next, uh, actually, is it next week or the week after. We're going to talk specifically about that. But that was one of the excuses. The time isn't right. Another excuse that they had was, we don't have the resources. Nazareth chapter 3 <clears throat> um, it says that many of the older priests and Levites and family heads, oh, the, I'm sorry, context here, the dedication of the foundation. So they, remember said they built the foundation back in Ezra before everything stopped? They were having actually a dedication ceremony for that, to beat that point. And so here at this point, and it says, but many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, the one that, so we're going back 50 years prior to that, wept aloud when they saw the foundation. These were not tears of joy. These were tears of sorrow. So we're talking, um, these are the people who were old enough to remember Solomon's temple that he built and the size and the grandeur and all the things that were happening there. This temple they were building didn't come close to that. It was much smaller. It wasn't. And basically, there was, their, their attitude was, we don't have the money to build what we had to before, so why bother? They were willing to give up because they thought anything less than what they had before was a failure. Now, the problem wasn't that they didn't have enough resources. The problem was that they had expectations beyond what God was asking of them. And because of that, they just didn't even try. They were part of the group that said we're not even interested in rebuilding. So that's the second excuse. The third excuse we see from the Israelites is that we have adversaries who would stop us if we tried. This one's actually true. This isn't just an excuse. This is actually reality. Um, there was political and social opposition. Local officials had been bribed. False reports had been sent to the king. 
all true. But think about what would have happened if certain people let a fear of opposition keep them from moving forward. Abraham would have stayed in his homeland. David would have stayed with his sheep. Paul never would have embarked on one missionary journey, let alone three. Jesus would have stayed in his father's workshop. The threat or the presence, actual presence of opposition should never keep us from doing what we know God would have us do. And that's the critical variable there. If God is calling you or asking you to do something, nothing should prevent you from moving forward. I'm convinced that it's only in those moments when we step out in faith that we, that we see God step in front of us to lead the way. We have to take that step, and then God will come alongside and actually come in front of us to lead the way. The fourth excuse that we see with the Israelites, they say, we're too busy with other projects. Now, verse 3, what we're just reading from Haggai, it says that they were building their own homes. Again, that's a reasonable thing. I mean, we all need a place to live. So the idea of building homes is reasonable. There's a giveaway there that's in the verse, and it says he refers to their paneled houses. Paneled here is not just the style of, you know, interior is not painted or paneled or wallpapered. Basically, it's, it's, it's to signify luxury or ornateness, elaborate. And it really is kind of odd that he actually makes a statement because later on, Haggai acknowledges the poverty of the people. It's, you know, that we find out that they're going through drought, there's crop failure, there's food shortages, there's inflation. So all these things are going on. So w- what's going on here? There's actually, there's a, a <clears throat> I almost see what I'm trying to say here. Scholars, thank you. Who, there's a, there's a, a contingent of scholars who actually think that Haggai isn't talking to the people at large. He's talking to the two leaders. Remember, he actually says the word of the Lord comes from Haggai to these two leaders. So he's talking basically to the governor and the high priest. It's possible that those two are sitting in laps of luxury while the people are suffering. What is clear, regardless of who exactly owns these homes, the point point that Haggai is wanting to make is that they have homes and God does not. And for Haggai, that was a big deal. Now remember, Haggai was a product of his times. He lived in the culture and the environment, the circumstances. Now he probably didn't remember the glory days of David when things were the best and Israel had the most power, but he certainly remembered the glory days of Solomon when the temple was as it was, when things were going well. But then he also watched as the people continued to turn their backs on God. And judgment came. For Haggai, he believed that they could regain God's blessing and favor if they just rebuilt the temple. Now, the simple fact is that doesn't work for us today. We don't have temples. or we don't, That's not part of our faith tradition. And, and none of it, it's not just because of practicality. It's a theological issue too. We believe that God doesn't live in a physical building. He doesn't live in a temple, that God lives within each of us who give our life to Jesus. First John chapter four, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. 
This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. God no longer lives in a physical building and a temple. He lives in us. So if that's the case, then if if the circumstances and situations don't even relate to us that they were with Haggai, why is Haggai relevant and important for us who live here in the 21st century? Here's my thought on this one. Here's why I think it's important. We often associate God's judgment with as a form of punishment. You do something wrong, and something, and then something bad will happen to you as a result. It's punishment. <clears throat> now, as we'll discover over the next few weeks, Haggai reminds us that God's judgment can also be the withholding of God's blessing. So it's not just the act of punishment. But sometimes the judgment is the withdrawal of God's presence and God's blessing. That's very significant for us today. Their inaction limited God's ability to bless them. Judgment can come for doing bad things. Adversity can also come for not doing the right thing. So I'm going to close here with four ways that their excuses are hurting us here today. One is, I think, when God gives us clear direction, our excuses become an insult to God. We may be kidding ourselves with our excuses. We certainly aren't fooling God. Um, A couple years ago, one of my classes I was teaching, it's online, Zoom. I probably had 20-some students in the class. One of the young men, um, you know, he was on his phone participating in the class, and informed me, you know, in the class time that he was at church, he's on staff at a church, and they were doing some remodeling thing in the back of, you know, like like they're rewiring the sound booth or something like that. And so he put his phone in the corner, propped it up so that, you know, it looked at the phone booth so we could see the area, and then he walked away. Um, You know, when he did, they kind of made this comment, you know, about, you know, you know, priority of God's work and, you know, God's work is never done kind of a thing, and then, you know, walked away. What he was clearly telling me was that whatever he was doing was more important than this class. So how much of this class did he absorb that day? Actually, none, because I clicked the button and booted him out of the class. Um, so he wasn't, he wasn't, it was more distracting when you've got the screen than it was, he was disturbing everyone else. So I actually, I literally, um, technically booted him out of there. <clears throat> he was making an excuse that God's work has to, can, you know, he can't interrupt God's work. That really wasn't going to, it was an issue of priorities. And it really was insulting to me. And it was disturbing to everyone else in the class. Not doing what we know we should do is a form of disobedience. And making an excuse to justify it is just insulting. The second thing I think that we can look at this from Haggai is that excuses can cause us to miss a God moment. If God is asking you to do something, he's not asking you to go out on your own. He's not asking you to be isolated and do things on your own. He's asking you to join him in what he's already doing. Sometimes I joke, you know, that when I get to heaven, one of the first things I want to do is go to the information booth and ask for to see reruns of creation. What did that look like? Um, I also wonder if we'll see reruns of our life. 
You know, we're to see instances and situations, and the commentary will be, see that person there that you were too busy to engage? Here's what would have happened had you actually said hi to them or engaged them in a conversation. Here's what that would have led to. And I wonder how many of those moments we miss because of excuses that we'll make. I think a third thing that applies to us today is that excuses can limit the potential God has placed in our life and the plans he has for your life. I think these words are familiar to most. For of all the sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. Anybody? It might have been. Uh, It's a poem written in 1856. Um, You know the name of the poem? Maud Miller. Maud Miller was the name of the poem. Maud was a farm girl. Um, she met a judge from town. They loved, they, and both fell in love with the other, but neither one expressed their feelings toward the other. They both ended up marrying peop, other people, always wondering what their life would have looked like had they only had said something back when they had the opportunity. Neither shared their feelings. Excuses can limit the potential God has placed in our life and the plans that he has for our life. Lastly, excuses can cause you to miss the blessing of obedience. If you're ever discouraged and in need of cheering up, do something nice for someone else anonymously. Don't let them know it was you. There's something very deeply satisfying, so soul-enriching that happens when we've done the right thing. When we do something nice for someone else, we do what is right. Obedience creates that sense of it it feeds and fulfills our soul. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to explore some of the other things and insights from Haggai. Um, Today was kind of an overview, if you will. It's amazing to me that someone whose life is nothing like ours has so much to teach us about God and our relationship with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the story of Haggai and uh, his life and the account and his ability to write down his observations and thoughts and what you had shared with him. And Lord, from that, we get a sense of what was happening at the time and why it was important that they did certain things. And Lord, it also convicts us when we recognize that sometimes it's not just the behavior, it's the attitude behind the behavior that convicts us. And in that regard, we are just like the Israelites. There's things in our lives, Lord God, that continually um, put our own desires and preferences before you. And so, Lord, may your spirit convict us, not in a condemning way, in a way that makes us feel less than uh, who we are, but makes us realize that we can be better, we can do better, and that you have more for us. Lord, as we uh, start this new year, may it be a year of of realized expectations. May it be a year of realized hope. And Father, for some of us, we're just, we can't turn the corner quick enough. Uh, Lord, we also recognize that things don't change overnight and they may take time. 
Uh, so God, we pray that you would continue to give us patience and Father, hope and expectation for what will be, even if it isn't is even if it isn't in existence right now. Lord, more than anything else, our desire is that our relationship with you would be strong, that we would hear your voice, that we would recognize it when you speak to us, and that we would then have the courage and the strength to make space for that intervention in our life, but also the strength and the courage to do what you've asked us to do. Whether that's starting a new business or uh, talking to the neighbor who's out cutting his grass. Um, Lord, whatever you would lead, may we be obedient to you in the days ahead. We thank you for all these things, and we continue to put our hope and our lives in your hands. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.